Just a warning, this particular episode contains profanity. I think when you travel, there's this set of unknowns that you kind of expect. You assume that you can manage those because you've had experience dealing with unknowns in travel, right? For the first time in many years, I was like, oh, this was completely unexpected and I'm also like, couldn't pull from anything. So what do you do when all your experience in the world hasn't prepared you for the things you encounter while traveling by bicycle? Well, if you're Devon, you surround yourself with good people, sit down, and you figure it out, preferably while eating a snack. My name is Devin Callens. I currently live in Atlanta, Georgia. I have been riding bikes for about 10 years, and I currently work as a summit and event specialist for the East Coast Greenway Alliance, which is a nonprofit organization. Devin might be fairly new to bikepacking, but in the last few years, she has packed in some major adventures, including week-long trips in both Montana and Cuba. She's also someone who puts a lot of thought into her trips. She's a self-described planner, she keeps a journal and actually writes in it, and she also plans bikepacking excursions for her WTF Bike Explorers Atlanta chapter. But what's great and sometimes not so great about bicycle travel is how our plans are so easily upended and how our expectations about a place are completely defied. What's most interesting is how we react in those situations. It can totally change our perception of who we are and why we're traveling there altogether. This is Dynamo Jenny. I'm your host, Jessica Zephyrs, with Adventure Cycling Association. And today we explore destinations and expectations. Travel has a funny way of shedding a little light on the inner workings of our minds and culture. But it also gives us this rare opportunity to show what we're made of, to change the landscape of what we think we know, and to build something better inside ourselves and out from the experience. I'd met Sarah Snow, um, who works at Adventure Cycling Association, at a conference um, in D.C., the National Bike Summit. Sarah was standing outside of this, like, conference room. I, I'm not really sure how I, like, bumped into her, but she had, like, we were chatting and she, like, opened her bag for a snack and she had, like, two hard-boiled eggs that she was snacking on. And I was like, oh, that is so funny. Like, I often bring the same type of snack when, like, traveling or being out and about. We have something in common. This person is eating like boiled eggs in the middle of the hallway in D.C. at like 11 in the morning. Kindred spirit? I don't know, but turns out, yes. Turns out we like to eat food a lot. And our um, synergy over snacking on trips is like very much aligned. During both of the trips we've been on, we've had several moments of looking at each other like, time to eat. And so it's really nice to be hungry at the same time as someone when you're traveling together. kind of just unexpectedly connected. Um, we were kind of at similar places in our lives and similar ages and I think both sort of looking for folks to hang out with at the conference. We really just hit it off and we got to talking and we were both doing bike overnights and um, I mentioned I'd never been to Montana and Sarah mentioned there was a route she wanted to try and so she was like, come visit. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I think the energy and connectedness and 
our conversations and space made it easy for me to um, make the time and commitment to travel to Montana to do an overnight with Sarah. So that's, it was, you know, sort of this, I don't want to say like magical experience, but we did have, we just kind of connected unexpectedly. And I can now say that she's a dear friend and we've only known each other for um, over a year. The Montana trip was my first traveling overnight bikepacking trip. So my first bikepacking trip had happened a few months before that, but um, and I'd done some locally here in Georgia, but nothing that I got on a plane for. We'd been chatting, and there's this loop called the Thousand Buddhas Loop that I believe a couple of folks at Adventure Cycling had developed a couple of years ago, and a loop that Sarah had been wanting to try out, and I was fairly wide open. Um, I just wanted to have sort of access to things, but was open to letting her kind of take the lead. The days I think we did, five days with one day break in between. So we kind of just talked through what our comfort levels were, you know, how many miles per day we'd be okay with. For this specific trip, I was borrowing a bike from one of Sarah's former colleagues who happens to also be a short person who's 4'11 and I'm five foot. So it was perfect. Um, I hadn't traveled with my bike before at this time. I was really excited. I personally was aware that, you know, Sarah grew up in Washington State and has been in Missoula since college. And I remember one time we were talking on the phone and like she described her week and she was just like, oh, well, you know, I went to work, then we went climbing and then like I did this. And then like she listed like five outdoor activities she'd done in seven days. And I was like, I was like, oh, I went, I had some wine. And then like, you know, it was just like my life doesn't revolve around like doing outdoor things. I think on that level, I was wondering if I could, let's say, hang. You know, we did have a conversation about like bears, which I like wasn't expecting. I think I, my excitement sort of like on the initial, like just being in Montana, being in a new space, you know, being able to see the mountains like outside of someone's window, like all of those things were really like exciting to me. And so other hesitations that may have come up didn't really hit me till I was already there. I was in Montana and Sarah was like, oh, you can borrow Allie's bear spray. I was like, what? And then we're kind of like climbing. I remember specifically like beautiful view. We're like climbing up this gravel. Elevation is really intense. I'm out of shape. Oh my God. And Sarah's like, oh, got a friend, little Grizz. So like her calling for bears, explaining the bear thing, seeing a grizzly, all of that. And me trying to like climb up this hill, these hills, whatever was like, a lot to take in. I wrote this in my journal, actually, like app, like that night. I was like, Sarah was extremely patient, calm, and reassuring. Yelled a ton so that grizzlies were aware of our presence. And then I wrote, there was a mental block on my ability to keep going. How do I improve? There's lots of gravel uphill, some walking of the bike. Like, how can I get stronger? What does this mean? And just sort of like, sort of, I was kind of processing in the moment while we were riding, but then later was like, you know, there were a lot of things happening all at once in that moment that was super like pulling back some layers for me, which like in essence is also a part of like why I enjoy bikepacking. It's like this experience, sort of these unknowns, though you've like planned this trip, the sort of reflection points of for me, like growing both mentally, emotionally, physically, and like what that looks like. I do have this air of fear around safety in the outdoors. And I think that 
that exists for a lot of folks of color. I could spend hours talking about reasons why and like the history of our country and like all these other things. The fear like blindsided me a little bit. I guess I was like, oh, like this is so fun. It'll be, you know, blah, blah, blah. Grizzly bear is okay, whatever. And then I was just like, fuck, like we're outside, you know, for amount, an amount of days. Like there's a lot of, it just sort of like was lingering and being with Sarah helped to sort of quell some of that and like reassure me. But I was also like, it just, it felt very, the fear felt very real. And I was like sitting in it a little bit. Does that make sense? And I think that's something I've continually think about when I'm traveling in Montana looks very different from like, you know, rural Georgia, right? There's like stray dogs here. Extending to trusting in my gut and not letting fear kind of take over. It's, is a, I think, I guess a skill, a piece, something I'm still developing. That was one of the unexpected, I think, things that sort of like slapped me in the face um, that I just wasn't prepared for, I suppose. Even though Devin encountered some things she didn't really feel ready for elevation, rough roads, the largest land predator in the lower 48, she paddled on. And what she got to experience next was, well, what she calls intrigued white folks. I don't want to call it culture shock, but there was a layer of like, oh, this town is somewhat rural and there are a lot of white people. Now I experience that in life. <laughs> I think I've taken for granted, you know, living in cities. As far as the trip overall, I think there were two specific examples that come to mind of like things I encountered that I wasn't expecting as it relates to race. <laughs> The first is Sarah and I were spending um, a night and on a campground. I think it was the first night. And the next morning, we kind of chatted with some of the folks who were there, who had their RVs um, parked on the campground. And one of the women who we encountered came up to us and she was like, you know, I biked all over the world, I think back in the 70s with her partner. And she was like, I always said that I would pay it forward whenever I encountered like cyclists, like who were traveling. She offered us coffee to come into our RV in like a warm space. And she was traveling with her sister and, and her best friend, Donna Ray. They actually live and one of them lived in, I think Utah, the other ones lived in Seattle. And so we're just kind of chatting and they're like, what do you do? Yada, yada. And just talking about our shared experience. And, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I don't, when I share about myself, I don't sort of like censor things and and, a, and I, when I say censor like not language I mean like if I'm in a group of white people I'm not gonna like not talk about how my role as a black woman like is integral to my life right so I don't censor myself in that way and so I just sort of talked about myself and like race came up as I was saying like and you know running like managing a group where I try and center you know xyz and it's important to me to support like queer folks of color and all of this other stuff so I'm talking about myself to these like three old white ladies. At some point, one of the women was telling a story and about like history and race. And then in telling that story, she was quoting someone in the story who ended up using the N-word and she actually said the N-word. In my mind, I was like, wow, that was well-intentioned, but completely unnecessary. And I wouldn't have corrected her in that moment because I don't know her and it didn't seem worth it to me. I found myself thinking about and this opportunity to connect with us and to relate to us, to Sarah and me. This woman is like, I've I traveled all over the world. She invites us in this like seemingly like, you know, honest, perfect. And it's still honest, you know, s scenario. 
this woman felt the need, what I'm assuming felt the need to relate to me, share that she was like open and welcoming of like types of people, but like probably isn't, doesn't consider herself a racist or whatever. But like in my head, I was like, you know, we're already connecting all all these levels. There's no reason for you to tell a story about like this race story and then also use the N-word. And so I thought to myself, like, how could I have prevented this from happening? Because I, there's, I never want to be in a situation where like a white person thinks it's okay to use the N-word. Like, I don't want to think over those people ever in my life. Didn't taint the trip, but something I will never forget, right? And then the second scenario, it was the third, I think it was the second day. And um, in packing for this trip, I'd like unexpectedly packed like two Wake Forest items. Like I don't ever wear like college gear, but like I found a beanie that was a Wake Forest beanie and then found a shirt that was a Wake Forest shirt that's like dry fit. But And we were looking for this campground called Hidden Lake, which in fact was hidden because we couldn't find it. And I, these women, Eileen and Nancy, <laughs> saw us and they were like, oh, we've got this campground. We Like if you need to camp somewhere, you can camp on our property, whatever. They actually live in Missoula, but we're, I guess they come up on the weekends. It's near Placid Lake. We ended up chatting with Eileen and her husband and her friend Nancy um, in their RV that night. I had on my Wake Forest beanie. It was very cold. We're eating dinner. And Eileen tells a story about something called the secret game, which is like, I guess her grandfather had gone to Duke and back then, like in the forties, you know, whites and blacks couldn't play basketball together. There's this book that was written called the secret game where like Negro athletes and white athletes like played basketball together. And it was like this big deal because it was like illegal at the time. On the outset, my hope is that she told this story because I was wearing a Wake Forest beanie and her like grandfather went to Duke and like there's a connection point because they're rivals and like whatever. But again, there was this like level of, I want to say what felt like they wanted to connect with me and weren't sure how. So maybe like the Wake Forest thing. And then again, I like don't think it was necessary to talk about race to connect with me, but like that came up. And then the second day we leave and Eileen is just like really taken with us. And she's like, my family has lake house. I'm out on the road please come like say, Hey, whatever whole set of other family members are at this camp, this lake house. I'm like by the kitchen washing some fruit or something. And Eileen's sister tells me the same exact story about her dad, her grandfather, and like this basketball game and like black people not being able to play basketball with white people. And it's illegal. And I'm just like, what? Like, and again, I think I may have had on a work forest like shirt or something. I don't know. But I was just like, what is going on here? Like, it just felt like what the best thing that I can say is like intrigued white folks, which like happens and like whatever. But it just felt like this, where is this strong need to like attempt to connect with black people? Like I, I just, I'm still like working out in my mind, like where this comes from and like why this seems okay. But also in that scenario, I'm not sure how to correct that sort of, not correct, but my mind is in several spaces of like, do I say something? And I ask this person like, actually, you know, this is not okay. Or am I like, you know, whatever, that's just like, they're going to be who they are. And I can't really waste my time like having that conversation. That's an added layer of travel 
this these sorts of scenarios and I don't think that's going to change and I already I do recognize that like I am someone who happens to be a woman of color happens to be queer who's also traveling by bike at times so that's a section of privilege like having a bike having this gear taking like pay time off to do this travel right so that in and of itself is like something that's not it's a privilege it's privilege um and so I do want to acknowledge that as a woman and a person of color, I've spent a lot of time apologizing for things that I don't need to apologize for. And so make no mistake, like I was angry, but I also was like, I don't want to waste my time. We just let this exist as it exists. I'm not responsible for your education or whatever. And that is, I think, something I'm reminding myself, like I need to be who I am 24 seven, 365. If that looks like making a white person uncomfortable because they felt the need to relate to me through this story about race, like I may have to do that. And that's okay. It does give me this space of like, I think there are interactions like this that could also make me say like, eh, sometimes this travel is exhausting because like shit like that happens, right? But then it's a space of saying, when will we be living in a time and place where like I can travel with like a group of 10 friends who are all brown and like people aren't like saying dumb shit or like there's no sort of like not, we're not having to educate folks or apologize for existing or all of this stuff. And so I think one of the reasons I do am like packing am wanting to create a space for folks who are interested in this and want to do this kind of travel or just, you know, do overnight trips with folks who aren't cis dudes. It stems from a lot of that, those feelings, right? Of like representation spaces that are feeling like I can access this space too and belong in this space, right? A huge thanks and virtual hug to Devin, one of the busiest and most active advocates in the cycling world. You can find her and her Atlanta chapter of WTF Bike Explorers on Instagram. I'm kind of like, I like cheesy jokes and like deep fried food and like I'm generally polite and friendly and kind of wholesome. So (laughs) if that makes me Midwestern, then fine. I'll be Midwestern. (laughs) If he doesn't like that, then he can go back to New York. Cynthia Ord was hopeful that her 2019 cross-country bike tour would provide her with several things. One, the time and space to learn about and experience the small corners of the country she had never seen before. Two, the same kind of time to examine the small corners of her own upbringing that shaped her view of those places. And three, a fun time biking with her then-boyfriend. Turns out, two out of three isn't so bad. And on the second day, when we were in northern Colorado, it just started to rain, too, and that kind of exacerbated the tension. You know, like, where do we pull off and look for shelter? our stuff's all wet and we crossed the border to Colorado and there's the sign on the Colorado border that says welcome to colorful Colorado and it was 
the grayest, most colorless afternoon you could imagine. You know, that was going to be like my big photo op. And like, we were just wet and cranky. And, you know, we're at this side and I have to like convince him to stop and take a picture, even though it turns out really gray. <laughs> I guess that snapshot is like a pretty good snapshot of the of that whole four days. <laughs> I knew I wanted an established route. I had also thought of doing one of the through hikes, you know, like the Pacific Trail or the Appalachian Trail. Part of the appeal to that for me was the community and the camaraderie around being on an established trail. So I was like, okay, well, what would be the the bike tour equivalent of that? That's what attracted me to the Transamerica Trail. It was actually funny because I decided to do this tour even before I started dating David in the fall of 2018. And we met on a dating app where I saw that he had a picture of himself on a bike tour. And that was that was all I needed. Like I messaged this guy and I'm like, hey, uh, like I knew that we would have that in common. He was amazing in the pre-tour days of helping me get ready and uh, finding the right gear and supplies and even overhauling my bike, which was a road bike, um, and getting it ready, kind of converting it into a touring bike with me. He was so supportive of my going out there for a summer and doing it. There was a window of time that he could join me for part of the tour. And that happened to be when I was pretty close to Colorado and Denver where we both live. So he joined me. He took the Greyhound bus up to Rollins, Wyoming with his bike in it. And that was our starting point. And then we had four days to get back to around Breckenridge, which is the closest point to Denver on the route. So that was the plan. Just take four days to cover that distance, which was pretty in line with the pace that I had been doing up until then. And I guess the first thing that came apparent pretty quickly is that we had really different styles of bike touring. Like I had been doing an all paved road tour and he had done more gravel touring and he liked being off the roads. I liked following the route. I liked the, yeah, the community and the adherence of staying on the Transamerica route. Like that was my jam and that's what I wanted to do, but he really wanted to go you know, do some little detours off route and kind of choose his own adventure. So that was more his style. And I guess thirdly, I I was more into camping or lodging pretty close to the road, like on established, like an established campgrounds. And David really liked wild camping or like going off route and being far away from people and like cooking over a campfire and I like restaurants. So there were some so there were some pretty major uh just touring style differences that came up. I mean, this has been kind of part of our differences before this. So he was in he was in Denver for this temporary thing, which was a medical residency. He was comparing it to 10 years before that in in New York, New York City, and also Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
And to him, he just found that the local culture of Denver and Colorado wasn't like, he didn't like it very much. And he miscategorized it as Midwestern, which it is not, but (laughs) I do see some similarities. So I think he was just overall frustrated with Denver as a location, I think broader, more regionally than that. And he kind of lumped it into Midwesternness, which is, I don't know, this is always confusing to me. I think it was just lack of East Coast abruptness and standoffishness. (laughs) I don't know, the, (laughs) the parts of the big coastal cities on the East Coast that would, I would probably not last more than three days. So that's kind of where the conversation would would go. Like that would be the the theme. And then Cynthia's partner did something unexpected. He cited his trouble as originating from his distaste for Denver and the life they would soon be returning to. He accused Cynthia and the place she loved of being too Midwestern. Yeah, I mean, we would just be talking like at the campsite. He would say things like, oh, I'm, I'm more frustrated with Denver than ever. And it's a cultural thing. And it would, you know, I would be trying to get to the bottom of that. Like, why, what do you even mean? And then there would always be the looming question of once his residency was done in, in June of this year, what would happen? Like at the beginning, it was like, well, I don't know, I might stay here. I might not. And then I don't know, as the months passed, it was more like, oh, maybe I'm leaning more towards not staying here. And then by that point, it was like me trying to convince him to stay here, even though he was less and less into the state as a place. This falling out came at an interesting time for Cynthia. Not only was she chamois shorts deep into a trek across the country, but she had done her research on this topic and was coming up with a completely differing conclusion. Before setting out, Cynthia had made a concentrated effort to read as much as possible about the parts of America that she wasn't so familiar with. She chose autobiographies, histories, political commentaries, and memoirs. I love books. Books are just what I turn to for stress relief and companionship and all sorts of things. So I did have quite a book list both before and during during the tour. I put those both online. So yeah, one of the books that I really liked was Pete Buttigieg's memoir called Shortest Way Home. This was when he'd already declared his run for presidency. It was really interesting to read about his view of South Bend, which is kind of, he was kind of using it as archetypal mid-America. You know, the problems of South Bend are the problems that face a huge portion of the country. That really went into a lot of the problems that these areas face, especially socioeconomically, a lot of decline of the industries that they knew and counted on for a long time, the decline of auto manufacture and coal. He goes into all those things. What will replace them and how can these places lift themselves back up again when they've seen such industrial collapse and decline? And it was interesting because I also read a book by another candidate, then candidate, um, Andrew Yang, who wrote The War on Normal People. And he talks more about the threat of automation than he does about, you know, problems specific to any geographical region. But of course, the Midwest and Middle America get highlighted a lot for the same reasons. They've 
they've seen the kind of industrial decline that Andrew Yang is predicting that automation will cause even more of. So some of my reading on the Spike Tour also doubled as political information seeking on various candidates at the time. So it was useful to see how these two people were presenting the problems and what uh, their some of their proposed solutions would be. And then the third sort of political, the book by a political figure that I read was Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, which was beautiful and hopeful, I guess on a, on a lighter side. One book that I really liked, I'd read it before, but I, I revisited it, a book by Jim Gaffigan, the comedian from Indiana, and it's called Food, A Love Story, and it's hilarious. And he goes through the U.S. and he sort of categorizes each region by the ridiculously unhealthy sort of local cuisine that they have in each place. And so when you're writing through the Midwest and the South and Kentucky and all you're basically living off fried food from gas stations. This was the perfect thing to be reading during that time. It's just a delightful kind of look at the states through its stomach. In Missouri at one point, I found they had all these little fast food places that they were calling dairy bars. They were calling them dairy bars. I like didn't know what a dairy bar was. I was like, I like dairy and I like bars. Those are two things I like. (laughs) I realized that there was an entire section dedicated to the different things that they would put in deep fryers on most of the menus. And one of my favorites became like deep fried macaroni and cheese. There were a lot of places that were doing that just like on the side of the road, which is amazing. There was one that even had some like broccoli involved in the deep fried mac and cheese so go ahead and count that as a vegetable for the day (laughs) deep fried pickles i mean those were no novelty for me but it was amazing to find them pretty much everywhere i went (laughs) I, i was basically in deep fried heaven and that was perfect that was fine i think during the tour One of my favorite books that I read was a memoir called Heartland by Sarah Smarsh. And she grew up in rural Kansas outside of Wichita. So she goes through it both as a memoir, but also as as a sort of socio-political commentary. So the subtitle is A Memoir of Working Hard and Being Broke in the Richest Country on Earth. She has a lot to say about... um, the economics and the politics of being out in such a rural and forgotten part of America. And it's all woven into the context of her own story and beautifully written. So it was such a treat to be reading that while I was in Kansas and to hear that sort of firsthand account of growing up. And she still lives in Kansas, actually. She still lives in Lawrence, Kansas, where she's a professor. That was a really good one. It had some great perspective. She continued her reading while out on tour. Of all the books she read, a few really stuck with her. For Cynthia, these books were temporary portals into places where she was, glaringly, just a tourist. And at the end of the day, 
Nothing beat the lessons she learned from the people already inhabiting those spaces. I remember I was at a county fair in Kansas, and I had been cycling with this older Dutch guy named Bernard for a few days, and we both decided to stop at this county fair. It was really fun. There was this tent where the 4-H club had baked a bunch of pies, and we were both just eating like slice after slice of pie. It was heavenly. (laughs) And Bernard was still kind of a foreigner, like very sociologically curious about everything he saw. And he was asking a bunch of questions. And at one point, in such an accent, he asks this teenage girl, like, it must be really hard to live out here in, where were we? In Kansas. And she just looked kind of surprised. And she's like, no, not at all. I I love this. This is my home. I love being out here on the plains. I can look out and see for miles and miles. And this is where I always want to live. There were parts of it that definitely defied negative assumptions that people might have about that part of the country. I think you never know where people are from subjectively or like where they identify as being from or what they relate to or not in terms of their place. Uh, That girl at the country, at the county fair in Kansas, loved being from Kansas. I met one of my warm showers hosts in Kansas, did not. She says, I'm a Californian at heart. So I guess you you can't really know um, how people identify even on something like hometown or place of origin or place of residence and, until you really talk to them and get their their perspective on it. I think a sense of pride in your own hometown or residence is always... Um, appreciated or or valued, but it shouldn't be expected. You know, there's there's sort of this flippant traveler idea that oh, the locals are so friendly and um, they just really love the place they're in. When that may or may not be true, some people might not like the place or the region that they're in, they might be critical of it. You know, sometimes when you have like your rosy colored traveler glasses on, you don't want to hear the the downsides or the problems or the negativity of somebody about their own place. For me as a traveler, that's part of the richness of it, like the different angles of the stories. I want to hear what you love and why you love it, but I also want to hear what you don't like and what you think outsiders should know. Not everybody wants to paint you the Disneyland version of where they live. When she looks back at that time in Colorado with her boyfriend, she feels the original sting of his accusation, but she can see it now for what it really was, someone else's attempt to define their own sense of place. And I guess update on that, he applied to 11 places all in New York. (laughs) 
and has recently accepted a job in New York. So maybe that was sort of like the inevitability of it. Like he was just on his own little adventure bro chapter of life out here in Colorado. Many thanks to Cynthia Ord, who runs a website called Little Miss Bike Tour. Olivia Round set out across the southern United States in an attempt to fix something that was broken. Somewhere in the deserts outside of Phoenix, she was transported to a familiar place of wholeness, a place she had all but forgotten was built into her very being. But I'll let her take it away from here. That afternoon, as my boyfriend and I pedaled our bicycles along the flat desert road, we'd felt desperate. The sun was setting on another day in Arizona, somewhere between Phoenix and Tucson, and we didn't know where to camp. The road had been laced with barbed wire, and the few houses we'd seen were peppered with no trespassing signs. Did this have something to do with the giant federal prison we'd passed just ten miles ago? Probably. In the last two weeks of bicycle touring, we'd become accustomed to pitching our tent wherever. From our starting point in San Diego all the way to Phoenix, there'd always been a hill to camp behind or some bushes or sand dunes to mask our tent from the road. Even along the border with Mexico, where white border patrol cars growled back and forth, we'd found quiet places to camp. But this stretch of highway, containing that creepy prison, didn't seem like the kind of place we should set up our campsite without permission. Ahead of us, a man was jogging along the highway. When we caught up to him, we slowed down to ask where we might spend the night. The man continued to jog along next to our bicycles, suggesting we ask at the monastery up the hill. The monks are really nice, he explained, never losing his stride. Sometimes they give out free food and stuff. My first thought was, a hill? But sure enough, the man pointed to a mound in the distance, rising from the desert floor. And my second thought was, a monastery? Spending the night in a Greek Orthodox monastery had not been part of our travel plans. But if there's one thing I've learned in 7,000 miles of bicycle travel, it's that bike tours can take you to some unexpected places. And I was always excited about food, free or otherwise. As my boyfriend and I cranked up the hill towards the towering monastery buildings, we passed some women wearing a surprising amount of clothing for a desert afternoon. They had long, dark skirts, socks with sandals, long-sleeved sweaters, and headscarves tied beneath their chins. 
When we smiled and waved, they deftly turned their backs to us, avoiding looking at me in particular. I was suddenly self-conscious of my spandex shorts and thin t-shirt. Uh, Liv? My boyfriend said gently. I think you need to put on a jacket. And pants, I agreed. By the time we reached the gates, I'd pulled on more layers. Monastery residents strolled by and eyed us curiously, and I found myself unwilling to remove my helmet. In this crowd, I felt naked without it. My boyfriend went in to talk to someone, and I waited with the bikes outside. Now, normally, I'm the one that chats with strangers to start the can-we-stay-here conversation, but he and I both agreed that in this place, he should probably do the talking. He returned with one of the monks, who seemed excited to see us. Are you Orthodox Christians? the monk asked. We shook our heads. That's fine. You're welcome here. So, you'll be staying in separate quarters, men and women, and let me see the schedule. He informed us that church service was at 1 a.m., and there was no pressure to go, none at all, but if we wanted to be there in the middle of the night, we'd be welcome. And, he added, if you want breakfast, we eat it at 3.30 in the morning, just after service. Then we return to our quarters to rest until 8. The monk turned to me and, very earnestly, began fretting about my attire. We ask that you follow our dress code during your stay, a long skirt, long sleeves, and a scarf to cover your hair. His hands flitted in front of him like birds. We'll lend you a skirt and a headscarf. You can fold the scarf into a triangle and tie it under your chin, babushka style. Now he gestured towards my boyfriend. We remain clothed in all common areas and in the private quarters, too, and we remain covered until we are in our beds. So you'll need something that you can wear in the dorms to stay covered and then sort of slip out of it when you're in your bed. He turned back to me. Do you have a long nightie or a long shirt or something like that? I was trying to keep up. It all seemed rather complicated. Yeah, I said. Because we can also lend you something, the monk offered. Yes, yes, that would be great. My smile was more like a wince. Head coverings, long skirts and curfews, separate quarters for men and women. All we'd asked for was a place to pitch our tent. I was having second thoughts about staying here, but an older woman approached with an armful of clothes and I dutifully pulled on the dark blue skirt and tied the headscarf under my chin, babushka style. And, well, then I felt I was in too deep to back out. The woman led me away towards the women's quarters. My boyfriend and I glanced at each other, but we didn't protest. This was going to be the first time we'd had some space from each other in weeks, and while I was worried he would go hungry since I was the one clutching our pannier bags with all the food, I realized I was actually relieved to be away from him. The truth is, this bicycle tour was a last-ditch effort to salvage our relationship. My boyfriend and I had been together since we were 19 years old, long enough that we'd become synonymous with each other. 
that the margins of who we were as individuals had started to blur. And that scared me. Just a month ago, I'd tried to break up with my boyfriend. We'd been living in a small cabin in Alaska with no running water. He'd thought it would be romantic to spend a winter together like that, in the rustic frozen north. Instead, the darkness and isolation made me feel like I was losing my mind. When I proposed a breakup, my boyfriend proposed an alternative. Let's get out of here, he said. Let's go on a bicycle adventure. So we'd packed up our bikes and took an Amtrak train to San Diego. And we'd been pedaling through the desert for weeks, all the way to Arizona, to see if heat and sunlight and travel could fix what was broken between us. The women's quarters in the monastery were low-ceilinged, with neat little beds lining the long room. It felt buried in the stone building, like the servants' quarters tucked beneath the castle. Some women looked up when I walked in, but most kept their eyes down, their hands moving over clothes or bedsheets, getting ready for the night. My guide handed me a set of sheets, some soap and towels, and pointed to my bed, then to the bathroom. I didn't sense any animosity from these women, but I was nervous. I felt like an imposter. Beneath these long, modest clothes, I was a born and raised atheist. I enjoyed things like sex and skinny dipping. I was a rebel, an athlete, a feminist. I didn't belong here. And yet, here I was. Quiet hours began at 7 p.m., which was soon. The monk had said no conversations, no showers, and that all persons should be in their beds, either resting or reading quietly. So by the time I'd showered, dressed again, and eaten a snack from my pannier bag, I only had 15 precious minutes to wander outside before quiet hours began. The monastery pathway was paved in smooth stones, a winding mosaic between towering palm trees and lush gardens. Flowers were blooming everywhere, their colors glowing in the twilight. A small, striped house cat darted across the path and into the shadows, chasing a moth. When I turned a corner, I had this sudden, unexpected view of the bare desert spread out below. Like the ocean, it just stretched on and on, disappearing into a haze on the horizon. The view was framed by my headscarf. It was like peering out the portal of a submarine. It was disorienting, this alien view and someone else's clothes on my body. Who was I, anyway? What was I doing here? I thought of my boyfriend and wondered how he was faring. In the recent weeks, his constant presence had become exhausting. That very day, in fact, as we'd pedaled through the desert and passed that god-awful prison, I'd been doing the atheist version of praying. Please give me a break, I'd thought. I want to be alone for a while. I'd crave the feeling of my own company, to be separate from my boyfriend, to exist without him. Back in the monastery dorm room, a set of flannel pajamas were waiting on my bed. I lifted one sleeve, stifling a laugh. 
The fabric was this garish turquoise, smothered with puppies and pink hearts. These were, simultaneously, the cutest and most revolting pajamas I had ever seen. They were a welcome contrast to the drab clothing everyone else had been wearing so far. Soon I met Ellie, who occupied a bed near mine, and within minutes we discovered that we had a mutual friend in Portland, Oregon. We got so excited talking to each other that we completely forgot about quiet hours, until one of the other women came over and said, Shh. I waited for further reprimand, but none came. Instead, the woman pointed to the ceiling and said in a thick Greek accent, The monks, they will be listening. It is quiet time, so here, take some chairs, get closer together, and whisper. I glanced around and realized that most of these women were in short sleeve shirts. And was that a tank top? A bra strap? And then I saw one woman boldly changing into her own colorful pajamas right in the middle of the room, her white panties flashing in the dim light. This bedtime ritual was not at all as the monk had described. My new friend Ellie and I leaned towards each other, whispering and giggling. This was the first girl time I'd had in weeks, and it was utterly luxurious. Outside this dorm room, women covered themselves in muted fabrics and behaved somberly. But here, away from the eyes of men and monks, it was a slumber party. We made our own rules. We could be ourselves. evening I slept deeply and was awakened by Ellie's voice. It's midnight, my new friend was saying. Time to go worship. My brain refused to wake up, but I dragged the borrowed clothes onto my body and tied the headscarf sloppily under my chin. Stepping into line behind the other women, I followed them mindlessly as we flowed through the dark hallways. When we reached the main church area, the monk was waiting. He gestured for me to sit outside while the others went in. I wasn't permitted into church because I wasn't baptized, but, as he happily pointed out, I could look through the windows. It was honestly too dark to see. I spied my boyfriend seated on the other side of the hallway, and we waved to each other. He was just a vague figure across this dark space. We agreed in hushed voices to meet at the front gate at 8 a.m. the next morning, and then we turned back to face the dark chapel windows, our hands in our laps. The dim light and the monk's hypnotic chanting made it hard to stay awake. Finally, after two and a half hours, people began to exit the church and lead us away to a large cafeteria. There were platters of scrambled eggs, freshly baked bread, thick squares of goat cheese, and grapefruits harvested from the monastery orchard. This food, especially a big plate of buttery cookies, made all the waiting worthwhile. Afterwards, I think I followed the women again, drifting back to our dormitory like a school of fish, but I was too tired to remember. You leaving? A voice asked the next morning as I packed up my panniers. 
It was the woman with the Greek accent, the one who'd encouraged Ellie and I to whisper the night before. When I nodded, she reached for a hug. You ride your bike back next year, she told me, and I baptize you, okay? I laughed, flattered by her offer. My boyfriend was waiting for me at 8 o'clock, the morning sun glinting off our bicycles. He looked as sleep-deprived as I felt, but he smiled. Want to take a quick walk around before we go? He gestured to the gardens. His camera was already in hand. A very, very short one, I replied, tugging at my ill-fitting skirt. I'm roasting in these clothes. I followed him on the stone path between the flower beds and the palm trees. He crouched down, the camera lifted to his eye, trying to get the right angle. It was all so familiar, the way he squinted at the digital screen between shots, the way he rubbed his nose with his right hand, the way his thin gray shirt pulled across his shoulder blades. My boyfriend just seemed very certain of who he was. I stared at him through the portal of my headscarf and realized this was the beginning of the end. I was seeing my boyfriend from a distance, after a night apart, and I could no longer see how we fit together. To everyone else, we were an item, a team, inseparable, a power couple, as one friend had called us. But I didn't feel like his teammate that morning in the garden. I felt like a captive. I closed my eyes and remembered the sound from the night before, all those hushed voices from women getting ready for bed, like doves cooing or waves lapping on the shore. I loved that sound. I felt the dread of this impending breakup, of the awful times ahead of us. But no matter what decisions I made or where life led me next, I knew I could find that sound again, that soothing, intimate discourse of female friends. It's what I'd lacked in the cold cabin in Alaska. It's what had prevented me from severing myself from my boyfriend forever. But now, I knew it would always be waiting for me. If I could find sisterhood halfway through a bicycle tour, at a Greek Orthodox monastery in the middle of Arizona, then I could find it anywhere. Huge thanks to Olivia Round, who wrote this original piece just for us, and we couldn't love it more. Olivia runs a really fantastic blog at oliviaround.org, and she can also be found on Instagram at oliviaroundbikes. Jenny is a project of Adventure Cycling Association. It's hosted by me, Jessica Zephyrs. 
produced by Becca Zook and Jessica Zephyrs, a.k.a. The Z-Team. And Becca Zook also edits the show. Special thanks to Alex Strickland. Maybe stay away from the berms, man. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Daniel Mergan made original art for this episode. You can see it and so much more on our website, adventurecycling.org podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please recommend us to a friend or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. And hey, thanks so much for listening.